evening, everyone. And thank you, Gordon and Wes, and thank you, Anna, just for how you've led us this evening and what we've already been thinking about and uh, doing together. I've just really uh, valued it and appreciated it, so thank you. I just want to pick up on actually a couple of things before I sort of begin that we've already either sang or, or heard. Uh, and one is from a song we sang earlier, just this line, I rest on his unchanging grace. And then the verse that Anna put up, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious one. So just, just hold on to those two thoughts. I rest on his unchanging grace and the Lord is uh, the gracious one. If you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel 27? Uh, it's page 300 in the Red Pew Bible. If you're visiting or if this is your first time to Windsor on a Sunday evening, uh, we've been reading our way through David's story since the end of October. We started at 1 Samuel 16 and 11 chapters later, uh, we're here. Uh, and if you've been following this series you've probably been quite impressed with David. He's made a lot of good choices recently. So for example, he didn't kill Saul when he had a couple of guilt-edge opportunities. He chose not to murder him. David's also learned lessons and he's listened to advice as people have spoken to his life. So for example, Abigail kind of stepped in at a key moment in David's life and saved them from making a major mistake. So, so David's been willing to listen to people and take on board their advice and wisdom. David's also come to terms with and affirmed some amazing truths and realities about God. So if you were here last week, you heard him explain to Saul how the Lord rewards those who are righteous and faithful. And so, so David has learned that. He's discovered that. And he's passing that on to others. God rewards those who are righteous, those who are faithful. And so David, the man after God's own heart, is, is growing in stature as his story plays out. And you can't help but respect how he's coping and handling his relatively extreme circumstances. By the end of 1 Samuel 26, David's in a good place. He values Saul's life, even though Saul is intent on taking his. We also know that, that David is, is not looking to other people to affirm him. If you were here last week, you heard this. That David is looking to God to affirm his value. And that's a great thing to do. David's also in a good place because Saul's very last words to David have been words of blessing. The last thing that Saul does in David's life is bless him. And then they go their separate ways. So we've kind of reached a high point in the story and got a real insight in, into David's growth and maturity. He's worthy of our admiration. He deserves to be kind of up there as one of our heroes of the faith. And I know for many people, David is a hero of the faith. But... But then you come to chapter 27, the next chapter, and talk about a godless text, literally a godless text. 
Talk about shattered illusions. Talk about discovering that even the really big players in God's story have feet of clay. This is a chapter that if you've kind of been journeying with us and you've been impressed with David to date, this is a chapter that brings you back down to earth with a bump. Not surprisingly, it's not a well-known chapter. Most people tend to skip it or rush past it as quickly as possible, but we're not. And what I love about taking someone's story, as, as we have done here with Abraham and with Moses and now with David, what I love about taking someone's story and actually reading it right through is that we encounter the whole story, the, the real story, the true story, warts and all. Because sometimes I think we elevate certain Bible characters. And we kind of put them on a pedestal and think they were perfect whenever that is simply not the case. And it's why I do love the Bible, because it doesn't attempt to kind of airbrush out the less appealing aspects. It doesn't try to downplay or avoid the less palatable features of certain people's lives, especially the good. And that in itself gives us hope. And I hope it reminds us to kind of get a grip on God's grace. That actually as you read people's story in here, stories, you get it all. And you discover that God is a God of amazing grace. As Pete Wilcox comments, one of the remarkable things about the Jewish and Christian scriptures is their readiness to include such unflattering insights into the lives of the heroes of faith. And I really like this, this quote from Dale Ralph Davis now as he reflects in the chapter. It's a long quote, but it's kind of worth saying. The Bible does not claim that God's servants are dipped in domestos, so they will be infallibly sin-free and attractive to you. The living God does not have clean material to work with. And don't get sentimental when you sing hymns about the potter and the clay. Remember, it's only sinful, i.e. sinful clay the potter works with. We should not criticize the potter because of the clay, but rather marvel that he stoops to work with such stuff. As long as we wallow, however subtly, in some idea of human worthiness, we will never understand the Bible. Never tremble before this God. Never delight in this God. And that encourages me. And that gives me hope that great men of God like David were human. They did struggle. They didn't always get it right. And so with all of that by way of introduction, let's actually read this chapter. It's pretty short. It's 12 verses. And what we often do here at Windsor is we stand for the public reading of God's word. So let me invite you to do that. But David thought to himself, one of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. 
David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him. And David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns so that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave David Ziklag, and it belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory for a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geruites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. When David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels, and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. And when Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiah, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. Grab a seat. You see what I mean by godless? There's not a single reference or mention of God. Not one in the whole chapter. And the content, or at least so much of it is to me, uncomfortable. Not just the savage nature of David's actions as he wipes out people left, right, and center. Twice we're told that when he attacked an area, he didn't leave a single man or woman alive. He was merciless. Totally ruthless. But that's not the only disturbing dimension of this chapter. Even how it starts should ring all kinds of alarm bells with us. The very first sentence of the first verse reads this. But David thought to himself. Now that mightn't sound such a a big deal, but it indicates a real problem. If you were here last Sunday morning when we thought about some New Year's resolutions, specifically for Gordon, but, but hopefully relevant to all of us, the first one centered around a verse that Anna read part of at the start of the service from 2 Chronicles 20. And here was, here was the bit we read, or focused on, alarmed Jehoshaphat, good king, resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. And we made the point that, that, that this seems to have been his and should be our default position. That when whatever situation we find ourselves, we look to God, we talk to God, we listen to God. In other words, we pray. Here, 
at the beginning of this chapter in David's life, he definitely doesn't. He looks at his current situation and he sizes it up from a strictly horizontal, purely human perspective. There's, there's no sense of turning to God. There, there is no inquiring of the Lord here. There's no reference to a higher authority. And do you know what that leads to? Leads to skewed thinking. He forgets the bigger picture. He becomes pessimistic. He loses sight of God's promises. Look at the very next line in this verse. One of these days, he says to himself, I'm going to be destroyed at the hand of Saul. Now think about this. As David looks to the future, he reckons he's stuffed. It's not a biblical word, but just go with it. He begins to worry. He begins to stress. He sees little or no hope, which is fascinating. Fascinating when you realize and think about what David actually knows, what he's been told. Time and time again. And yet here he is thinking to himself, saying, do you know something? One day, Saul's going to kill me. Which is fascinating. But I wonder, do we ever do that? Do you ever find yourself looking to the future through a humanistic, godless, pessimistic lens? And becoming overly anxious and hopeless? Do you ever do that? Be honest with yourself. Do you ever do that? None of us can see the future or fully know it, and yet there is a tendency to allow what we think might happen or predict will happen to cloud or consume our current mindset. And that can seriously mess with your head and rob us of the here and now. That was David's experience in 1 Samuel 27. He he thinks to himself, He forgets God and the promises of God. And I want to suggest it happens the best of us. Now let's recall what David does know. And what he believes, or at least it seemed that he believed. Samuel had anointed him. Now Samuel's now dead, but Samuel had anointed him and assured him that he was going to be the next king of Israel. That's your destiny, David. God had spoken to David through his close friend Jonathan on more than one occasion that he would be appointed as ruler over Israel. 1 Samuel 25 was the last time. Two chapters ago, Jonathan said to David, you will be appointed as ruler over Israel, affirming your anointing from Samuel. Abigail, Nabal's wife, who then became David's wife, had told David reasonably recently that he would be appointed ruler over Israel. Even Saul, his arch enemy, had said, I know you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So how come David's now saying, one of these days, I'm going to perish at the hands of Saul? And the only answer that I can offer is because David has taken his eyes off God. David's lost his focus. He's focused on self. He's thinking to himself. But before we're too hard on David, let's remember that a relatively long time has elapsed since he was anointed by Samuel. No one knows for sure how long David was on the run. 
it's estimated that by the time we get here, he's been on the run for about 10 years. And do you know something? Do you know what that reveals? Waiting is never easy. Waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled is a challenge. And whenever that waiting period is difficult, whenever you find yourself in situations that make little or no sense as you wait, whenever there's pain in the process, whenever the waiting period's punctuated with problems and frustrations, you can understand why some people like David and like lots of us have questions or we start to doubt the promises of God. God, are you ever going to come through? When is that promise going to kick in? Here's David, 10 years down the line, had been told he's going to be the next king of Israel. And yet as he waits, he's been running for his life. And he's just got to a point of thinking, you know, it's, it's just not going to happen. And if you're here this evening and, and you're, you find yourself struggling to accept or believe certain promises in light of your present circumstances and the challenges that you're currently facing, then you're in good company. And I, I know there are some people who are part of this church, connected to this church, and you believe lots of the promises of God, that he'll never leave you, never forsake you, cast our burdens on him and he cares for us, and all of that. And yet at the minute, in light of your present circumstances, you just don't see it. Just don't see it. And David, David knew the promises. And he had heard them refreshed. And he had heard them restated, restated by various people a number of times. But he got to the point of wondering. And instead of trusting in God, despite the weight and despite the difficulties, he began to despair and lose hope. And I know of a number of people are there in despair and have lost hope that it's ever going to get better. And for David, what happened, as this chapter tells us, is that he made some crazy choices. Look at the next line. We're still just in verse one. Look at the next line. Think about this. Here's what David says. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Sorry? The best thing you can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. And so he goes and he seeks refuge with the Philistine king of Gath. Now, again, if you've been following this story, you should be thinking to yourself, hang on a minute. That's madness, David. Because whose hometown was Gath? Goliath. Now, hang on a minute. You're thinking to yourself, the best thing you can do is escape to the very place where you just took out their highest profile warrior. Sometimes when we take our eyes off God and his word, we end up doing things that land us in a worse or more vulnerable place. And so what David does is he turns to an unlikely source for shelter and security. And without pushing this too far, let, let me ask you and let me ask myself a question. Where's your go-to place whenever the heat is on? 
Where's your go-to? Whenever you're feeling under pressure or threatened or isolated or fearful, do you seek refuge in God? Proverbs 18 says this, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The godly run there and they're safe. Is that beyond? Is that your first port of call? Or do you head in a different direction? Do you tend to turn to another source in search of comfort and safety? You see, whenever we try to handle things by ourselves, whenever we, like David, forget to reference God, whenever we lose sight of God and his word and his promises, then there is a real risk that we'll seek security in potentially dangerous places. Where's your go-to place? Or what's your go-to coping mechanism? David heads over to Achish, king of Gath. And according to verse 3, he settles there. Now again, if, if you've been following this series or reading your way through this story, you might be thinking, actually, David's been here before. Now not, not just to Gath, but to Achish. And the answer is, yeah, he has. Because back in chapter 21, David, early on in his run from Saul, went to Achish, do you remember this? And he pretended to be insane. He acted like a madman. He scratched door frames and he let saliva run down his beard. Achish, it says, thought he had enough lunatics running around the place. And I'm just quoting scripture, by the way, here in case anybody gets offended. That's what Achish said. I have enough madmen running around. I don't need another one. Get this guy out of my sight. Which makes, again, David's decision in chapter 27 all the more surreal. Running and fleeing to Gath last time round turned out to be a disaster. He had to pretend he was mad. And yet here he is again, heading right back to the place that turned out such a nightmare before. And again, as I've thought about that this week, it's weird how sometimes you return to places and people that didn't help you the last time around. Why do we do that? Why do we keep going back? Why? We've ran somewhere before, sought security, sought comfort, didn't turn out well, got away from it, went on well for a while, hit something, and then we go back to the very place or to the very people that were not good for us or good to us. But for some reason, rather than learn the lesson, David returns, and it makes little or no sense. But let's read on. Because it does appear that there's one positive outcome here. Verse 4. <laughs> 12 verses. Don't worry, the second part of this is really quick. Okay. But there's one positive outcome. Verse 4. Word gets back to Saul that David has fled to Gath. And therefore we're told that Saul chooses to no longer search for him. So David can breathe a sigh of relief at last. Or can he? 
I mean, is David really safe or has he simply created a false sense of security? Could this be a case of out of the frying pan into the fire? You see, at the end of chapter 26, it, it did seem that the hunt was over. Saul had already reached, if you were here last Sunday, you'll know this, Saul had already reached the place of confessing his sin towards David and also blessing David. And then it says Saul returned home. They parted, they separated, they went their own ways. And so Saul's relentless pursuit of David did seem to be genuinely over last time round. But instead of accepting that, instead of trusting God with his future and embracing the promises of God regarding his destiny, David has lost focus. And therefore, he is still convinced that he's going to be destroyed by Saul. And so he heads to somewhere that simply puts himself and his family and his 600 men and their families at even further risk. And again, without pushing this too far, it is worth remembering that our poor personal choices and bad decisions often affect those around us. And particularly those closest to us. This could all go badly wrong here, but not just for David, but for a whole community of people. But in lots of ways, it doesn't go badly wrong. Grace. In fact, it seems to be going really rather well. And so David asks Achish for one of his country towns to settle in which he gets, a place called Ziklag. But look at the final phrase of verse 5. This is David speaking. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? The fact that David now describes himself as Achish's servant is surely worrying. There's no Joshua perspective here. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. No. In 1 Samuel 27, David has opted for an alternative master. David is somehow saying, I am now the servant of a foreign Philistine king. And I'm going to be here for a while. 16 months. Charles Swindle, in his great book, and David describes this as a lengthy period of compromise in David's life. And while he's there, David doesn't just sit about doing nothing. He goes reading verses 8 to 11. And those of you who are biblical scholars who read a bit around all this will know that lots has been written about these adventures. And as I said earlier, the ruthless brutality makes for uncomfortable reading, at least it does for me. But what exactly David is doing here is confusing. See the three people groups that he mentions in verse 8? They were enemies of Israel. Now get this, they, they were enemies of Israel, not Philistine. So could it have been that David is actually fighting for Israel undercover. But the thing is, 
they weren't Philistine allies either. So in a sense, what was the point in fighting them if he was trying to do Israel a favor? And when David is asked by the king of Achish, what have you been up to? David becomes vague. I've been raiding, he says, against the Negev of Judah. Which implies that he's been fighting in the southern part of Judah. Which implies against Israelites. So that's a bit vague. But then he doesn't just become vague. He blatantly lies. I've been raiding against the Jerusalemites and the Kenites, which is simply not true. And do you know why we know it's kind of simply not true? This is one of the reasons why he wipes everybody out. Every man and every woman. He doesn't bring any prisoner back. He doesn't leave any survivors because he knows that if he did, they would show up and say, here, let me tell you what he's really been fighting. So he just wipes everybody out. David at this chapter in his life, appears to be doing his own thing. He's operating under a cloak of secrecy, and whenever he's asked to explain himself, he covers up his tracks. And as the story unfolds, and we'll discover this in subsequent weeks if you choose to journey with us a little more, it leads David to a place of utter despair. And for now, as we we close this chapter, verse 12 we read that Achish trusts David. He believes he's sold out and he reckons that he's going to be his servant forever. And so this isn't a great episode in David's life. It's not his best 16 months. Far from it. And maybe it's no wonder the text is godless. But as I said at the start... The Bible doesn't dodge or edit out the bits that portray faith heroes in a negative light. But it serves as a reminder that even the chosen and anointed ones of Scripture are made of the same stuff as the rest of us. They were not perfect. We are not perfect. They didn't always get it right. We won't always get it right. As this guy says... The text will not allow us to view Saul with only contempt and save nothing but admiration for David. The text resists every attempt to make David the mirror of all virtue. That doesn't mean, and what I'm not saying tonight, and I would hate anybody to go away from here and think this, doesn't mean we simply make excuses and poor choices and then justify them on the basis of, well, people like David messed up as well, so it doesn't really matter. But what it does do or should do is remind us of God's amazing grace, his willingness to continue working with and using flawed human beings. Failure, and I know I've said this a number of times and I've said it again, failure is not final. And whenever we wander off and compromise and do our own thing, even if it's for a long period of time, even if it's for 16 months, even if it's for longer than that, God will not abandon us. We may abandon God for a while. We may turn our back on him. We may decide to do our own thing. We may think to ourselves. We may lose touch with the promises of God. We may lose sight of his word and what he has said to us in the past. But God doesn't abandon us. We belong to him. There is hope. 
there is a way back, but it might be via a place of despair. It might be via a place of major soul searching. And for David, that was his story. The adventure continues next week. But as we close, the song that I would love us to close with is a song that I'm, I, Anna's not sure we've ever sang it here. Uh, I, I love this song. It was written by, I think it was Chris Bowater years ago. Uh, tune's okay. Uh, but actually the words are just brilliant. God of grace, I turn my face to you, I cannot hide. And, and, and I just, I love this about the fact that a God of grace, I, I, can't, I can hide from you, right? I, I can keep things like from you and we can keep things from one another. But from God, I can keep nothing. My nakedness, my shame and my guilt are all before his eyes. Just, they're all out there. Not, not with you, but with them they are. And your grace clothes me in righteousness. And your mercy covers me in love. And your life adorns and beautifies. And therefore, because of that, I stand complete in him. Strivings and all anguish, dreams and lags lie at my feet. And only grace provides the way for me to stand complete. It's, it's nothing of myself. It's only because of the graciousness of God. And your grace clothes me in righteousness. Your mercy covers me in love. Your life adorns and beautifies, and I stand complete in him. So if you're here tonight, and you're kind of doing a lot of thinking to yourself, and not so much inquiring of the Lord, and you've been maybe doing it for a period of time, can I encourage you? I encourage you to look to God, to recall the promises of God. I know waiting's never easy, but as you wait, look to him. Because you stand complete in him. Because of who he is and what he has done for you. So let's stand together and sing this great song.